worship God together at church. I, I wonder how you're feeling tonight. You know, it's a great privilege, isn't it, to be able to come together as a group of God's people, to worship God together, to sing together, to pray together, and to hear from his word together. And then afterwards, look forward to some time of fellowship together. And sometimes it's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? That it's like a safe harbor. That after a really hard week living in the storm that is post-Christian Britain, you know, this is a nice community for us to take a rest, to have a breather. Monday hits again and we've been set out again. And maybe Christian, but for one reason or another, you've come and you found a sort of family or community here. Great, excellent. You know, you, you are more than welcome. But please do know that the church isn't just a sort of social club for nice people. I, I hope we're nice. Doing a few nice things. Um, no. We meet together week in and week out because we believe in the one creator God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross for our sins. And that for all the people who trust in him, we have a great hope of an eternal life in heaven with him. And we come together to worship the risen Lord Jesus. That's what we're here for. And that's what, and we long for you to know him too. Now, all that said, however, it might be really nice to meet together, but it is possible for the church to become hard or difficult, isn't it? You know, we are a group of people who, even though we're saved, but we're sinners who are saved. We are people who are not perfect yet. And so it's only natural that there would be friction in some of our relationships, isn't it? Now, in the case of the church in Philippi, to whom Paul was writing this letter, we know from later on in the letter that there appeared to have been friction in the church between two particularly influential people. And you can imagine, can't you, that if you're having relational issues, you know, maybe a really difficult one with somebody else at church, it'd be really easy, wouldn't it, to just start avoiding them you know, at all the church events. Or even worse, you just stop coming to church altogether. Perhaps you are just somebody who happens to know of these influential people within the church. You know, you're looking on at the life and the, and the bickering that's going on. And you, and you observe them and you see how they're treating one another in a less than Christian way. And as you look on, you, you come to the conclusion that actually Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. And you'd rather not have anything to do with them. And so you draw yourself from the life of the church. And maybe, you know, you're a fairly mature Christian and you're sat there thinking, do you know what? That will never happen to me. I will never leave the church. Well, I certainly didn't design this, and I don't know if Andy did, but just before this service, we, we, we were in the back praying for people who, for whatever reason, had fallen away from the church. 
And some of them were quite well known to the church, and some of them even served the church in whatever capacity. You know, this is, you're not immune. And that's why this message today is so important for us. You know, these are not hypothetical situations. All of us have seen this happen in the life of the church. And so the one thing we must ask ourselves then is what does the Bible tell us about how we are supposed to deal with this situation? And the passage we are looking at today gives us two reasons why we can persevere in the life of the church and in Christian life despite sometimes having difficult relationships. And then it gives us one thing about what this perseverance looks like. And so that basically forms our three points today. Firstly, the first reason that you can persevere in the life of the church, even though sometimes difficulties arise, is that firstly, you are being prayed for. The second reason is that you are being preserved. And the third thing we're going to see is that persevering or staying the distance in the church means that you lead a life that is pure and blameless and filled with righteous fruit. That's what it looks like. So the first thing to note from this passage then is that Paul here is telling the Philippian church that he's praying for them. You know, that, that, that's got to be the first thing that jumps out at us as we look at this passage, isn't it? You know, do you see there in verses 3 and 4? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Then in verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And, you know, it's possible to just break this passage down to, to two. You know, verses 3 to 8, Paul is telling them how he's praying for them. Whilst verses 9 to 11, Paul's telling them about the contents of his prayer. But then, why does that matter for us? Why is the fact that Paul prayed for the Philippian church even remotely relevant to us today? I mean, it's not like the Apostle Paul is praying for us here at London City Presbyterian Church, is it? No, he died almost 2,000 years ago. And he's, he's not up in heaven interceding or praying for us. Why should we care if he was praying for the church in Philippi all those years ago? Well, the thing is, Paul might have passed away, but there have been successive generations of pastors and ministers and elders who hold to the teaching of the Bible and who follow the examples set by the apostles like Paul, and they continue to do the same for God's people. Now, when we became official members of the church, like Letitia did last week, we get a promise from the elders to say that they are committed to praying for us regularly. And we have the responsibility to let them know how they can best be praying for us. In fact, just yesterday, the elders met at Brad's house to pray through the members list. The elders are committed to praying for every single member of the church. And so the reason Paul's prayer for the Philippian church is relevant for us is because he then sets the example for all the subsequent elders and ministers of the church. And faithful elders and ministers of the church follow his example in prayer for their congregation. 
And so when we face tensions in the life of the church, we can remember that though things may be difficult, we have godly elders who love us and are praying for us. And actually, pastors and elders aren't the only ones for whom Paul is setting his example. Now, I want you to notice his reasons for praying here. Now, look there in verse 5. He's praying with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. Now, here he's not saying that he prays more, he prays joyfully for them because they're some kind of partners in law, in a law firm, or some kind of business or official relationship. No, he's talking of a, of an intimate fellowship, of close personal relationship that comes from having the same faith in the same Lord. Elsewhere in scripture, we're told how through faith, we are knitted together as one body of Christ. Relationships do not come closer than being one body, does it? And what's the second reason that we see in verse 7? We see he holds them dear in his heart because they are fellow partakers in grace, in his imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, he's praying for them and they are dear to him because they are his co-workers in the spread of the gospel. They helped him while he was imprisoned and they together with him are working for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What's the third reason? Well, we see it in verse 8. He yearns for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. He prays for them because Jesus loves them. And if his Lord loves them, he loves them too. He, he loves them with the same love of Jesus. In short then, what are the three reasons that Paul gives for praying for them? Firstly, that they share the same faith. Secondly, that they are doing the same work. And thirdly, because Jesus loves them. And what do we notice about the reasons that he gives for praying for them? None of those reasons are based on Paul's apostleship or his eldership in the church. No, he doesn't base his reasons for praying for them on any official post that he may or may not hold in the church. No, the reasons that he gives for praying for them were simply that they were fellow Christians like him. Which, which means that Paul's example isn't just for the elders and the deacons and the official office holders of the church. He's setting an example for all the Christians in the church to be active in prayer for one another, for all the members of the church. And if you're a member of the church, just cast your mind back to the membership vows that you took. In fact, just cast your mind back to last week when Letitia had to take those vows. We welcome Letitia into membership, and then we promised, all of us as we enter into membership in the church, we promised that we would be praying for other members of the congregation regularly. What does that mean for us today then? Well, firstly, if you're a Christian who attends London City Presbyterian Church regularly, and you're not yet a member of the church, well, the first thing I need to say to you is that you, know, you need to think about 
joining the church as a member. And maybe just begin to have a conversation with Andy and the elders about it. Secondly, if you're not a Christian, you know, I, I wonder if you, like my family, when I were just coming to visit, I wonder whether you've noticed that this is an extremely loving and warm community. You know, this is a group of people who are completely diverse in gender, race, and social economic and educational backgrounds. And yet, somehow, we all get along. We're one body, working for the spread of the gospel. And we love each other with the same love that the Lord Jesus loves us. You're so welcome as a visitor. You really are. We love having you here. But we'd love it even more if you were to join us in sharing our faith and becoming a member of the body properly. Now, thirdly, to the members of the congregation, well, are you praying regularly for other members of the congregation? Are you praying with joy for them, giving thanks to God for them because of the intimate relationship you share with them through having the same faith and the same Lord? Do you hold other members of the congregation dear in your hearts because we are all co-workers for the cause of the gospel? Do you yearn for them with the affection of Christ? Do you love them and pray for them because the Lord Jesus loves them to the point where he was willing to die for them? Now, imagine a church where every member is involved in this kind of prayer for one another. Wouldn't that be an amazing church? So abounding in love, that banality clashes minor offenses against one another, unthoughtful conduct against one another, those things would just be forgiven and forgotten just as quickly as they were committed. Now, as a family, Julia and I and the boys, we've been at LCPC for a little over a year now. And even when we were just visiting, we were struck by the warmth of the fellowship here. And as I've meditated on this passage over the last few weeks... I'm more and more convinced that it's because it's not only the elders who are active and committed in prayer for the congregation. I'm sure that significant proportions of the congregation are active in prayer for one another also. And so if you are one of those members, you know, if you're one of those people who have taken your membership vows seriously and you're active in prayer for the church, thank you. Thank you so much because God is hearing your prayers and he's answering them. But for those of us who are perhaps not so committed, now can I encourage you just to revisit this area of your prayer life? Maybe just commit to praying for a different member of the congregation each day this week. You know, it's just a suggestion and I'm not making you do this. But maybe just write down seven names of the people that you know in the church. And you don't even have to pray a big, long prayer for them. Just simply pray a prayer. Thanks God that you share the same faith and Lord as them. That you're co-workers in the gospel with them. And that Jesus loves them. Short, simple, easy. Shouldn't take you more than 30 seconds a day. And as we're active for prayer for one another and our affections grow for one another, it's easier 
It becomes easier to persevere in the life of the church and in the faith, isn't it? Because of our love for one another, we would want to stay in the church and in the faith because we love the people we share it with. Now, the second reason that we can persevere in the life of the church, even when relationships might might become difficult, is that not only are we being prayed for and that we should be praying for one another, is that we're being supernaturally preserved by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Now, if you're a Christian, I want you to think about your testimony, your, your story of how you became a Christian. And, you know, from my sort of experience at church, these stories tend to fall into three categories. Now, the first is that you were privileged enough to be born into a Christian family. Your parents were diligent, or at least not neglectful, to teach you about God. And you grew up going to church, and you've always been a good little boy or a good little girl. And actually, you've never really known a day where you didn't, where you weren't a Christian, where you didn't know things about God, or where you didn't have faith in God. Now, the second is that perhaps you did grow up in a Christian home, or you know, at least around Christian things. Then, during your teenage years, or before or after, you fell away from the faith. Or you simply became honest with yourself and you realize that you're not a Christian at all. You begin to live a lifestyle consistent with not being a Christian. And sometimes later, God in his kindness and mercy brings you back into the fold. And since then, you've been living the life that God has called you to live. The third is that perhaps like me, you grew up in a distinctly non-Christian home. In my case, a totally pagan home. Where, you know, there are wooden blocks of idols actually in the home itself. Or maybe you just grew up with atheist parents who told you that God didn't exist and anybody's stupid to think that he did. And so you grew up knowing nothing about God. You lived a lifestyle consistent with knowing nothing about Christianity or about the one creator God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, and the eternal life of glory that we can look forward to. You know nothing of that. But through God's grace and mercy, he he works through the witness of friends. Through enlightening you as you read the Bible and perhaps providing a moment of crisis in your life. And then you're wonderfully converted and you put your trust in the Lord Jesus And now you can't imagine a life lived without him. Now, they're three very different stories, aren't they? But what's the one thing that they all have in common? The one thing they all have in common is that God is behind it all. God is the one who is working in all three of those stories. Now think about this. If, If your testimony is story one, at some point... In your family's history, God worked in the heart, mind, and life of your pagan, atheistic, hard-hearted, unbelieving ancestor to bring him or her into a saving faith in him. And for the next 30, 50, 100, 200, 300 years, he continues to work to preserve a distant Christian witness in your family so that when you were born... 
You were born to a family so filled with Christian love and so steeped in Christian worldview that when the Holy Spirit comes to save you, you're so privileged that you don't even notice much of a difference. The Holy Spirit came and he regenerated you and he worked in your heart, in your mind, in your life in the exact same way as your pagan, atheistic, hard-hearted, unbelieving ancestor. And you didn't notice much of a difference. What an amazing privilege that is. And if your story is story too, you know, you know how gracious God has been to you, don't you? You know that you've had the privileges of all the people with story one, and yet in your hard-hearted rebellion, you wandered away from God. And in his grace and mercy and love, he preserves you, never letting you go too far. And even though sometimes you may think that you've gone too far, when the fullness of time came, his Holy Spirit came, and he worked in your life in such a way that you're reminded of all the things that you learned as a child, And then you were transformed, perhaps even instantly, into a citizen of God's kingdom. And you've seen the Holy Spirit continue to work in your life each and every day since then. And if you have story three, you don't really need me to tell you about the grace of God. For centuries, no, millennia, your family lived in constant hard-hearted rebellion against God. And for most of your childhood, you were hell-bound, just like all those who have walked before you. And yet, even before you were born, you were known by God. And for the whole of your life, God tees up all the right circumstances so that you would be brought into contact with somebody or some people who would tell you the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus. And when the fullness of time came, his Holy Spirit came into your life, regenerating you so that you would believe and have faith and be saved. Now, if you're a Christian tonight, I wonder which story was yours. And do you appreciate just how much God did for you? for you to become a Christian. But if you're not a Christian tonight, I wonder what will be your story. Could it be story two or story three? Could it be that God has worked in your life in such a way already that having brought you here for the last few weeks and months, allowing you to encounter people who share the good news of Jesus Christ to you, could it be that even now he is calling you to have faith in him? And could it be that by giving you a story two or a story three, God, through you, could be transforming your whole family after you? Could it be that through you, God is giving your future generations a story one? Now, if you're a Christian and you know how much God has done for you, now, if you think... If God has done all these things in order to save you, do you really think that he'll let you go? No, of course not. 
He will continue to work in us until he completes that work. You know, we're being preserved. See there in verse 6? He who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of completion, until the day of Jesus Christ. God will not let you go. Having begun the work in you, regenerating you, bringing you to faith, he raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He has already done the hard bit. Of course, he's going to finish his work. Of course, he will preserve you to the end until Jesus comes again. Of course, he's working in your life so that you can persevere. Now, it's amazing to think, isn't it, that God was willing to do all that for us. What a privilege it is to be so loved by God that he would send his only son to die for our sins. And not only that, he would so order the world so that each of us would have the chance to hear the gospel. And not only that, his spirit would come into our lives and regenerate us so that we can come to faith, bringing us into spiritual life. That is incredible. But there are two dangers when we consider this glorious truth. The first is that as we consider the incredible work of God, we end up concluding that God does these things because of how amazing we are, because of how much we deserve um, to be saved, or simply because we're worth it. But that's far from the truth that we see here. What we see is that he doesn't save us for our glory, but he saves us for his. Do you see that right at the end in verse 11? To the glory and praise of God. It's for his glory that we're saved, but not for ours. Now this glorious truth should humble us, shouldn't it? And the fact of the matter is, one of the major contributing factors to tension between people is when one person begins to think themselves better or more deserving of preferential treatment over another. But as we come to grips with this idea that God is saving sinners for his glory rather than for ours, that he's saving them for his sake rather than for any inherent um, quality within the sinner. We come to realize that none of us should regard ourselves too highly, to think of ourselves as better than anybody else. Would we not be so much quicker to forgive those who sin against us if we come to understand this truth better? And the fact is, this applies as much to the person who's observing the conflict between people and wanting to leave the church as the people who are in conflict with one another. Because at least part of the thinking in that situation must be this, for the observer looking on. These two, or more Christians, are bickering and fighting over pointless little things. I would never do that. That is pride and arrogance. And you must know that God saved you not for your sake, not because you're better than other Christians, but for his own 
glory. So we've seen how we, we're being regularly prayed for by godly elders and other members of the congregation. We've seen how we should be praying for others as well. We've seen how God works to preserve us in our faith for his glory. And all of this means that we can persevere in the life of the church, even when things get hard. But what does it look like on a day-to-day level? And so we come to our third point. Perseverance means living a pure and blameless life filled with righteous fruit. You know, we can see this as much in verse 10 and 11. In fact, really, I've done nothing but read that verse out. All that we've talked about is so that we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Now, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But how are we going to get there? We go back to verse 9. As we remember that we're being prayed for by godly members of the congregation, especially the elders, as we ourselves commit to praying for others, and as we remember the great work that God has done in saving us and continue to work in us to preserve us, the natural consequence of that is that our love for one another and for God would grow more and more each and every day, isn't it? And as we grow in our love for one another, would we not be more and more willing to commit to the life and ministry of our local congregation? Would we not be more and more excited to Sunday by Sunday, midweek by midweek, Various events by various events to come and meet together, to share fellowship together, to love one another, to worship the God that we love together. And as our love for worshipping God together grows, we live lives that are more worthy for Him. Wouldn't it be natural that as we come together more and more and as our love for God grows more and more for our knowledge of God and for our knowledge of ourselves to grow as well. You know, Paul puts it beautifully here, doesn't he? Abounding more and more. His love abounds, knowledge abounds too. It's like this bountiful harvest of love and knowledge and all of us are sharing in it. It's a beautiful imagery, isn't it? And of course, as our love and knowledge grows, we know more and more what is good and pleasing to God. And you know, not, not just in a sort of binary good and bad kind of a way, but we learn to discern what is best, what is better, what is good, but also what is bad. We gain wisdom in what pleases God the most. And as we discern what is excellent, we don't just know it in our heads. We learn to pursue it with all of our hearts. And as we learn to pursue all the things that is most pleasing to God, wouldn't we then live a life that is pure and blameless, filled with righteous fruit? To conclude then, we, we need to remember that we're being prayed for by godly men and women in the congregation, especially by the elders. 
We need to be active in prayer for one another. And we need to remember that God is the one who saves us. And having raised us from spiritual death to life, he will not allow us to die again. And he does so for his glory, so that none of us can think more highly of ourselves than of other people. All of this leads to our abounding in love for one another and for God. Helping us to grow in our knowledge of God. Learning to discern what is most excellent to him, so that we may live a life that is, ex- that is pure, blameless, and filled with righteousness. And so when things are hard in the life of the church and in our faith, we're able to weather the storm and persevere to the day of Christ and all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, as we consider these glorious truths, we're blown away by your grace to us. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God who worked throughout history to save us and that your Holy Spirit works in our lives to sustain us. We thank you, Lord, that you have placed us in community with other Christians, other people whom you have worked in their lives. And we thank you that as we come together, worship together, work for the same gospel together as we share the same love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help each and every one of us to persevere to the end. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.